Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante. And on this episode of the podcast, we are going to finish the first canto of the first part, Inferno, of Dante's masterwork, comedy, or as some people have called it, or most people have called it, the divine comedy, although Dante simply calls it comedy. <laughs> We're going to get to that much later. I just want to remind you where we are here as we end up the first canto. Dante has come awake, found himself in a dark wood. He has tried to get out. He's come to the end of a valley. He started to climb a hill. He hesitates. He looks back, and then he's blocked by three beasts, a leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. It is the she-wolf that is particularly menacing or terrible or frightening. He starts to fall back toward that dark, lonely, savage wood, which is so scary. And he is stopped by a figure out of the mist who last time we discovered was Virgil. And I talked forever, it seems, about who Virgil was and how Virgil Virgil appears in the poem and started to set up some of the problems of Virgil. And we're going to pick it right up there. If you remember, we left it where Virgil said, to escape from the she-wolf, you have to go another way. So we're going to pick up what else Virgil says in this episode. Her nature is so violent and insane that her greedy hunger is never satisfied. Once fed, she's hungrier than ever. Many of the animals with which she mates, and there will be even more, until the Greyhound will come, who will put her to a pain-filled death. He will not feed on land or wealth, but on wisdom, love, and virtue. His birthplace is between Feltro and Feltro. He will be the saving of humble Italy, for which the Virgin Camilla died as well as Euryalus, Turnus, and Nisus. He will hunt the beast in every little village until he sends her back to hell, that place where envy first let her loose. Therefore, I think it's wise and discerning for you to follow my lead, and I will be your guide and lead you from here to an eternal place where you will hear the wailing of despair and see the ancient souls in torment who eternally lament their second death. And then you'll see the souls who are content in the fire because they hope to get to come among, whenever that may be, the blessed people. If you want to ascend to these, there will be a soul more worthy than I. I'll leave you with her when I depart, for the emperor who sits on high has decided that I, who was a rebel against his law, should never get to come into his city. In every part he reigns and also rules, there is his seat and his city. Happy is the one who he chooses to be there. And I to him, poet, I beg you by this God who you do not know, in order that I can get out of this evil and even worse, lead me to the place you've described so that I may see St. Peter's Gate and the ones you say are filled with sorrow. Then he started off, and I went behind him. I told you it was going to be unbelievable, and it is unbelievable, because what Virgil does uh, is turns <laughs> Virgil turns into a prophet. He has said that there has to be another way out, and the first way out that Virgil offers 
is a prophecy. I realize that Virgil means another way as in follow me down and ultimately down to hell, as we'll discover. But there's there's another point here. And Virgil says, if you recall, there is another way out. And then he launches into this prophecy about the future, that a greyhound will come and put the sheep wolf to death. I want to talk a lot about that, but I just want to stop and say the way out turns to prophecy. One of the things that's going to happen over the course of comedy is Dante the Pilgrim is going to become ultimately, as you'll hear me say endlessly, Dante the Poet. The Pilgrim ultimately becomes the poet and as the poet becomes the prophet. And Dante, this pilgrim, will slowly morph into a poet and a prophet. So that Virgil turns to prophecy right here is important for the setup of the whole poem. Okay, so without doing any funny voices, let me just talk about this bit about being a prophet. We think of prophets as people who tell the future, and certainly Virgil tells the future here twice. He first tells it about what's going to happen to Italy, and then he second tells it about what's going to happen to the pilgrim Dante. That is, he's going to map out what the journey is in kind of short form. Prophet in the Judeo-Christian tradition does not mean fortune teller or someone who sees the future necessarily. When the prophets arise in Torah, in the Old Testament, in that part of what is the is the larger Christian Bible, when the prophets arise, they arise as, best word I can think of for this, is pundit, is the modern word for commentator. They're truth tellers. They're diagnosticians. They walk on the scene to try to tell the people or the king or the judge or whoever it is in the story what they're doing wrong and what they need to do right to avoid the wrath of God. They are, well, again, modern day, we would call them pundits. Somebody who has has staked out a position from the Cato Institute, I don't know, and they've staked out this position and they're going to they're gonna force it onto the king, onto the judge, onto the people. Later, as prophets develop, they become more and more poets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they write these long giant prophetic books, or these books are written around these figures, whichever way you want to say it, and those books begin to start to talk more about the future. In other words, the judgment is coming, and then after the judgment, what will it look like? So that all future tense stuff eventually gets bound up in the notion of prophet, but first, a prophet is a diagnostician. And here, Virgil seems to be both a fortune teller or a future teller and also a prophet in that in that old tradition because he says that her the she-wolf's nature is so violent and insane that her greedy hunger is never satisfied once fed she's hungrier than ever many are the animals with which she mates that bit is very telling and redolent Last time I told you that there's, or I guess two times ago, I told you there are many ways to interpret this she-wolf, and one of them is as the papacy. If that's the case, then this is a full-on indictment of the papacy's corruption. Dante, I'm going to say this a thousand times over the course of this podcast, Dante believes himself the best Catholic who ever lived. 
he sees the corruption in the papacy and he's going to point it out in no uncertain terms. So here, Virgil is inside the poem providing this function that this she-wolf is hungry minier, the animal she mates with is that the alliances that the papacy is forming, particularly with the French, and there will be even more until, and then here it comes, the greyhound comes. Now, I've translated this word greyhound, it's veltro in the medieval Italian, and I, you should know that my translation of it, while it matches many of the modern translations, is still up for a little doubt by people. It is most likely a dog. You should think about greyhounds, particularly in the Middle Ages, which were becoming favored dogs of royal families. This will play in in just a minute. Favored pets of the royalty, and I'm sure you have seen early Renaissance paintings of various monarchs or high-level, sophisticated landed gentry with their greyhounds around them. This, Virgil says, is a greyhound, La Veltrovera, will come, who will put her to a pain-filled death. He will not feed on land or wealth, but on wisdom, love, and virtue. His birthplace is between Feltro and Feltro. And there, following some other modern translators, I have just left the medieval Italian as it is, Feltro and Feltro. This is tough. I'm going to give you at least five ways to interpret what Virgil says. It's opaque. It comes out of a biblical tradition from the apocalypse of St. John, from the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel, of offering these kind of allegorical prophecies to, dis to, de to determine the future in some way. Over the hundreds of years since the comedy was written, there have been many commentators who have taken on this prophecy, which is so difficult, and tried to interpret it. it. There are several of these prophecies over the course of the comedy. The next big hard one comes at the end of the Purgatorio, but there are several of these over the course of comedy. And this is the first one right up front. Dante set up with a challenge. The long-standing and first interpretation of this is that this is messianic. It refers in the Christian tradition to Jesus's return. And the greyhound, this swift dog, will come back and put her, the she-wolf, to a painful death. And the reason it's Jesus is because of this. He will not feed on land or wealth, but on wisdom, love, and virtue, which you know sounds like the Messiah at Christmas. And his birthplace is between Feltro and Feltro, and that could be translated as between felt and felt. If that's the case, then this is a reference to Jesus's humble birth in the New Testament, because felt was cheap cloth in Dante's day. So his birthplace is between felt and felt. It's between, you know, it's, it's in humble circumstances. There's no royal robes. There's no satin. There's no silk. Just felt. There's, and that's where his birth is between. And so all of that sounds like, you know, Handel's Messiah. It all sounds like Christmas passages. Let me also say for just a moment, and believe me, this is firmly within what could be happening here. Feltro and Feltro can be a reference to, and I don't want to get off color here, but it can be a reference to a woman's anatomy about how a baby comes out and what a woman looks like. Uh, I don't want to, again, get too graphic, but if that's the case, then again, this is about Jesus's birth. That's the first and dominant way to look at this, what this all means. There's a second way to look at this, and that has to do with Dante's hopes. Dante put great hope 
in the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII. The idea for Dante was that Henry VII would descend from the Holy Roman Empire, the German confederations up north. He would descend south toward Tuscany, and he would ultimately put things in order by putting France, and ultimately the papacy, in its place. In fact, Henry VII did descend, dying in 1313 of malaria before he could complete his campaigns in northern Italy. But when the comedy is first being written, maybe around 1304, when it's first being written, Henry VII hasn't yet descended and that hope has not yet been dashed. If this is the case, and if the Greyhound is Dante's great hope of the Holy Roman Emperor setting things right, then Feltro and Feltro may refer to the voting boxes in Florence. There was a rudimentary democracy in Florence and they voted in felt-lined boxes. If the emperor descends, maybe Florence will choose him as their emperor, choose to side with the Holy Roman Empire against the papacy and against France for Dante's hope to put things right. Maybe this could be the truth. It's funny that Dante didn't revise the passage then later when Henry VII actually dies, which is before Dante has finished completing the comedy. It's, it's kind of funny that he didn't revise it. It's also kind of funny to put his hope in a Holy Roman Empire, Emperor here rather than a religious hope because it sounds so religious, right? You feed not feed on wealth and land, but on wisdom, love, and virtue. There's a third way to interpret this prophecy, and that's this. I told you before that Dante had taken up with a local warlord, Can Grande I della Scala, up in Verona. And Can Grande had become sort of Dante's patron, at least his protector. If that's the case, maybe this passage refers to Can Grande. Maybe Dante hopes, as he's writing the comedy, that this local Italian warlord, Can Grande I della Scala, will descend toward Tuscany and put things right. There's two ways that you can think about that. One is that Can Grande just means Big Khan, like Genghis Khan, big leader. But Khan is also slang in medieval Italian for dog. So his name, Can Grande, means big dog. Now, a greyhound is not a big dog, so is there a problem here? Not sure. But is it that the big dog will come down and will put this she-wolf to a painful death, and that his birthplace is between Feltro and Feltro. And in fact, Can Grande the First de la Scala was born between the two towns of Feltre and Montrefeltro. So maybe this is shorthand for Can Grande the First de la Scala. You got Jesus as a possibility. You got Henry the Seventh, the Holy Roman Emperor, as a possibility. You got <laughs> you got uh, Can Grande de la Scala as a possibility, and maybe there's yet a fourth possibility. When it says his birthplace is between felt and felt, there are two twins who do wear felt hats: Castor and Pollux, the Gemini twins. They are known to wear their felt hats. And guess who was born under the sign of Gemini? Dante. Is it 
that this is a Virgilian prophecy about the coming of our very poet, whose poem is set to make things right, or whose poem is designed to make things right. That seems a grandiose interpretation. If that's the case, then Dante's ego is gigantic. And believe me, over the course of the poem, his ego will get gigantic. It just seems funny here all at the first. But let me offer a fifth reading of this weird and wild prophecy. What if the point is that it is blurry and fuzzy and it's difficult to make sense of? And what if over centuries, as commentators have tried to nail this thing down, as I just did for you, going through various interpretations, what if they're missing the emotional resonance of the passage? That is, that there is something vague that Virgil sees in the future, some greyhound coming to put things right. He will be the saving, as Virgil says, of humble Italy. And then Virgil lists off four characters, Camilla, Euryalus, Turnus, Nisus. He lists off these four characters who are actually characters in Virgil's own epic, the Aeneid. Basically, two of them fought against the Trojans and two of them fought with the Trojans. So kind of what's happening here is Virgil is saying Italy was founded because of the whole destined to be founded, because of the whole Trojan War. But it's now got this beast, this she-wolf running loose in every little village who needs to be hunted down by a greyhound. And I told you two episodes ago that it could be that these three beasts, the leopard, lion, and she will represent deadly sins. And that interpretation comes from this passage. He sends her back to, until the greyhound sends her back to hell, that place where envy first let her loose. So is she then a representation of the deadly sin of envy? You can see the complexity of this entire passage. Let's stop. Why does Dante make the first canto of comedy so challenging? I believe it's to put a speed bump right here to say to you, you cannot gallop through this poem the way you gallop through other things, through, let's say, the Canterbury Tales. Sure, there's a lot to be said about the Canterbury Tales. When I, when I was a medievalist, I studied with a, with a professor who had written her PhD dissertation on the Knight's Tale, about uh, the Knight's Tale as a debate between Augustinian and Thomistic theology <laughs> to start the Canterbury Tales. Okay, so there's much to be said about the Canterbury Tales, but you can read the Canterbury Tales for sheer pleasure, for sheer enjoyment. You can gallop through them as fun. They're bawdy, they're dirty, they're conversational. Here in comedy, we are given many, many roadblocks right up front to stop us, much in the way that the pilgrim is blocked. We are blocked, blocked by prophecies, blocked by beasts, blocked by interpretations that are growing and growing and growing. Out of this, thank heavens, Virgil simplifies things. He then turns to just telling what the journey will be. I think it's wise and discerning for you to follow me now, be your guide, and lead you from that eternal place to that eternal place where you will hear the wailing of despair and see the ancient souls in torment who eternally lament their second death. This is probably a reference to the second coming of Christ and the final judgment seat. And so all of those in hell who are waiting and lamenting what will be their second death. Then you'll see the souls who were content in the fire. That is, 
Purgatory. You'll note that Virgil doesn't name the place and doesn't seem to actually have a good concept of what the place is, because as we will find out in a future episode, Virgil is amongst the damned. You'll see the souls who are content in the fire, those who are purgating their sins, because they hope to get to come among, whenever it may be, notice Virgil doesn't know, the blessed people. If you want to ascend to these, that is, the blessed, the people of in paradise, there will be a soul worthier than I. I'll leave you with her when I depart. For, and this is what I kind of want to stop on, the emperor who sits on high has decided that I, who was a rebel against his law, should not ever come into his city. How can Virgil be a rebel against God's law? without ever having known what that law is. Virgil didn't read Torah. Virgil didn't read the New Testament. Virgil lived before Christ. But Virgil lived before the New Testament was written, before the Gospels were written. He had no way of knowing. How is Virgil, how is he a rebel against God's law? And you'll notice that Virgil doesn't name God. He says the emperor who sits on high. Virgil is going to always have a fuzzy nature of what is up in heaven, which makes Virgil, again, a funky guide for a poem that is so theological, a poem that is so Christian. Let me back up and say something about that for just one second. Last time, there was a lot of talk about trinities and threes and all of that in the poem. And there seemed to be, you know, a lot of Christian references being thrown around even today. I just want to reaffirm that I am not walking through Dante because I hold any of these religious values. I do not. I went to seminary, it is true, and so I get a lot of the references in here from my seminary training and from my Greek and Hebrew training, but nonetheless, this is not for me a religious experience so much as it is an experience of trying to figure out how the whole world operates, and that's what's amazing. And what is amazing to me about that is inside of Dante's humanism, he has put together himself and a former poet who is himself not saved. Listen, if I was writing a comedy about a guy who's going to walk across hell and purgatory and all the known universe all of paradise, he's going to take this gigantic walk through everything and every piece of what is. If I was going to have him do that, I'd give him a saint if I were a Christian. I'd let him walk with, I don't know, name one, St. Thomas Aquinas. I'd let him name, let him walk with Augustine. I would never let him walk with Virgil. Virgil is not necessarily the best Christian guide there could possibly be, but he is Dante's guide. And that's how it ends up, right? I to him, poet, I beg you, by this God who you do not know. And for the first time, Dante tweaks Virgil. Oh, this is going to get more and more the case over the course of Inferno and then Purgatorio. Dante is going to needle Virgil occasionally. And he does here, poet, giving him this name of such honor, poet, I beg you by this God you do not know, in order that I can get out of this evil and even worse, lead me to the place you've described so I may see St. Peter's Gate and the ones you say are filled with sorrow. Notice that Dante, at this moment, the pilgrim, does not mention heaven or paradise. He mentions St. Peter's Gate, which is in purgatory. It's in the Purgatorio in Canto 9, to be exact. But it's in purgatory. 
but he does not mention the Blessed Ones. Interesting that the pilgrim's focus is on the gate to purgatory, not even purgatory itself, and the ones you say are filled with sorrow, that is, everybody in hell who we're about to start encountering. And then the last line, which I think is maybe for me the most profound line of the canto. He started off and I went behind him. Why is that so profound? Because there's a poet leading another poet across the universe. Because there's a great poet leading uh, a middling poet, at least at this point, across the known universe because there's a pagan leading a Christian across the known universe because there's a damned soul leading a soul still alive and who can still be saved across the known universe because there's a fallible former, admittedly, fallible former human being leading another fallible human being across the known universe. If Saying all that, if you don't see the complexity of the poem itself, then I haven't done my job. Because the nuance and the complexity, the layers and layers of meaning that are existing right there in that simple phrase, he started off and I went behind him, Everything is bearing on that phrase at the end of the canto to make us understand that this is far more complex than we might imagine. It seems simple, and yet how many roadblocks have been thrown at us in the first canto to slow us down, to say, don't go so fast, stop, think. I'm not going to read this again. Instead, in the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, I'm going to read the entire first canto from start to finish all the way through so that you hear its flow and hear its sweep. And then I'm going to pause before we get to the second canto in that next episode. And I want to talk to you about the big structure of this poem, because this poem is actually a giant structural architectural piece of work. And I want to talk about that architectural piece of work before we move on and follow them into the second canto. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it. I'd love, I'd love you to rate it really a lot. Rate it, it really helps. And subscribe so that you won't miss another episode of Walking with Dante because the journey has just begun. <laughs>